0: Lawrence Wong, the ASEAN Summit, and a new president in Timor-Leste. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio, a CSIS podcast where we give you the latest news from Southeast Asia, and dive deep into candid conversations with regional and foreign policy experts. I am Simon Tranhudis. Today is April 28, 2022. And on today's show...
1: What happens in Ukraine will be of immense consequence to ASEAN.
0: That was Dino Padijalal, founder and chairman of the Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia and former Indonesian ambassador to the United States. He sat down with co hosts Greg Poling and Alina Noor to discuss how Indonesia, as president of G20 this year, finds itself in an awkward position in the aftermath of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Pak Dino talks about the tension between the United States and G20 chair Indonesia which is trying to keep the G20 focused on global economic cooperation and recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. Pakdino is a real character and a heavyweight within Southeast Asian policy circles. So I'm super excited for that interview. We are so glad that you get to join us as well. First though, the headlines So today to help me read the headlines, we have Drake Tien in the studio. Drake is one of our interns here with the CSIS Southeast Asia program. How's it going today, Drake? Thanks, Simon. Uh, A long-time listener, uh, a first-time caller. How's it going? (laughs) Yeah, it's all right. Um, Super excited to have you here on our second full episode. So I'll go ahead and get started. First order of business, the U.S. ASEAN Summit finally has a date, according to to a White House announcement on April 16th, President Biden will host the leaders of ASEAN in Washington from May 12th to 13th. This summit was originally scheduled for late March, but then postponed, likely due to the war in Ukraine, essentially superseding everything else. Drake, I know you've been looking into this. What do we know about the summit?
2: Sure, so the summit is really important for the Biden administration to signal its commitment to Southeast Asia as a region. There's been a perception, whether justified or not, the U.S. presence in the region is waning, and that Washington is ceding ground to Beijing when it comes to influence. And when we're talking about influence in the region, we're talking about things like regional security, economics, trade, even democracy and human rights. By inviting the leaders of Southeast Asia to come and express their wants and needs, the Biden administration hopes to allay concerns that U.S. foreign policy to the region is just focused on countering China.
0: Okay, so that sounds like a lot of big picture stuff. What concrete things might we expect to see out of this summit?
2: Yeah, so this summit is likely to build on the conversation that started when President Biden announced a raft of initiatives totaling over $100 million at the virtual U.S. ASEAN summit held in October of last year. These initiatives will focus on supply chain resilience and highlight U.S. vaccine aid and commitments to uh, the region's economic recovery, among other things. We also might see the United States call for more help in pressuring Myanmar's junta after it took over in a coup in February of 2021. The leader of the said coup, Min Ong Lai, was not invited to the summit, although a quote unquote non-political representative may be allowed to represent Myanmar. As for the other nine ASEAN members, all except for uh, President Duterte from the Philippines are likely to attend. This includes Hun Sen, Cambodia's prime minister, who is this year's ASEAN chair.
0: All right. Let's shift to electoral politics. One thing I've had my eye on is the presidential campaign in the Philippines, which Greg and Alina talked about in our last episode. So if you're interested, go ahead and listen to that episode where they interviewed Marita Vitug, who is editor-at-large of Rappler. The Philippine election is heating up. And can you believe it? there's only two weeks left until the May 9th election?
2: Man, I cannot. So where do the candidates currently stand?
0: The field has narrowed mostly to just two contenders. There's Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr. and current Vice President Lenny Robredo. Bongbong, who is the son of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, is the clear frontrunner right now. However, the latest opinion polls, although a couple weeks old at this point, showed Vice President Robredo closing that gap. Even so, though, she still faces an uphill battle challenging Marcos's well-funded campaign and vast online reach, as well as potent misinformation and disinformation campaigns circulating on social media apps like Facebook and TikTok. And moving south of the equator and continuing on the theme of elections... Timor Leste's presidential runoff happened this past week with former President Jose Ramos Horta winning with 62% of the vote and beating current President Francisco Luolo Guterres. Drake, do you know what we can expect from a second Ramos Horta presidency?
2: Sure. So uh, Ramos Horta ran on a platform of poverty reduction, job creation, and ending a long running political feud that essentially stopped the government from functioning. During a time when uh, Timor Leste has been in sore need of economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. In terms of foreign policy, Ramo Jorta will continue to pursue Timor Leste's bid to join ASEAN as a full member, a notion to which at least Cambodia, ASEAN's chair this year, seems receptive to. Additionally, some analysts think that Ramo Juarta will seek to build closer ties with China in order to attract more investment into the country, especially on oil and gas projects. Ramo Schwarta was endorsed by former president. Shanana Guzman, who, during his own presidency, relied heavily on Chinese investment in the oil and gas sector.
0: Interesting. All right, so we'll keep an eye on that. Last story of the day, after nearly two decades in power, Singapore's Prime Minister, Lee Hsien lung son of Singapore's founding father, Lee Kuan Yew, is now in his 70s and has signaled his intent to resign. His party, the People's Action Party, has indicated that current Minister of Finance, Lawrence Wong, will take over the top post. Drake, I know you take particular interest in Singapore and that you grew up there. So why do you think that the party chose Minister Wong?
2: Yeah, like you said, grew up in Singapore. I'm what they call um, over there in Angmo. So Prime Minister Lee had initially wanted to resign at the age of 70, but agreed to stay on until the pandemic abated. The PAP had earlier planned to have Deputy Prime Minister Heng Sui Kiet succeedly, but after Hang removed himself from consideration to make room for someone younger, the party coalesced behind Lawrence Wong. Wong was appointed as one of the co-chairs of Singapore's Pandemic Task Force, which gave him significant press coverage. While there are debates among Singaporean academics about whether he's ready to lead the whole country, the party
0: seems confident in his capabilities. Thanks for that insight, Drake. And those are the headlines. Thanks, Drake, for stopping by. Up next... Greg and Alina's interview with the chairman of the foreign policy community of Indonesia and former Indonesian ambassador to the United States, Dino Padi Jalal, about how Indonesia, as chair of the G twenty, is handling the Russia-Ukraine drama. So stay tuned.
3: Hey, folks! Thanks for joining the second episode of Southeast Asia Radio. As always, I'm your host, Greg Poling, director of the South Asia program here, joined by my co-host, Alina Noor.
4: Hi, Alina from the Asian Society Policy Institute.
3: And today we have a very special guest, the chairman of the foreign policy community of Indonesia and former ambassador to the United States, Pak Dino Jalal. Dino, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Greg. It's uh, good to be here and good to see you again. Yeah, it's great to see people traveling again, see friends back off off of Zoom. Not that our viewers can see you, but I promise Dino's here, In the flesh in Washington, D.C. So, Dino, um, this year was supposed to be a big year for Indonesia hosting the Group of 20. And then Russia invaded Ukraine. And as a lot of listeners might know, most of the members of the G20, especially those in the G7, uh, including President Biden, are pretty opposed to the idea of sitting down at a table under any circumstances with President Putin. What does this mean for Indonesia's chairmanship of G20 coming up in the fall?
1: Well, obviously, when Indonesia took over the G20 uh, chairmanship last year, uh, there were a lot of high hopes and high expectations about the G20, and none of us imagined that uh, Russia would invade and things would become very complicated for the uh, G20. Right now, the G20 is uh, split. There's the G7, who obviously want to disinvite President Putin and not having Russia take part in the G20. And on the other hand, there are the BRICS, who insist that Russia should remain part of the G20, and then the countries in between, yeah, that have different views. Uh, So at the time, uh, at the moment, the situation is very fluid. The Indonesian government takes note of a suggestion made by President Biden that Look, at least Ukraine has to be there, right? And uh, there's a lot of thoughts and discussions now. If Ukraine is to be invited, uh, then what will be the format, right? What will be the issue by which uh, Ukraine would be invited into G20 uh, discussions, right? But there's just a still a situation is still very uh, fluid at the moment, and Foreign Minister Ratno is doing a lot of shuttle diplomacy, talking to different parties, G, different G twenty uh, governments, uh, to explore a possible resolution to this issue. Yeah,
4: but you know the G twenty agenda, as originally planned by Indonesia, if I recall correctly, was going to be focused on post pandemic recovery and getting, especially um, SMEs up to speed on the digital economy. How has that changed now, that original plan to focus on the economy with Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Is Jakarta scrambling to accommodate other requests for a change in agenda, for example?
1: The Indonesian government position still is that the G20 is an economic forum and it should not address... uh, political or strategic uh, issues. Uh, At least implicitly, that's what they're implying. But uh, of course, the the reality is that Ukraine is the number one international security issue that has affected the global economy on many fronts, on uh, inflation, commodity price, supply chains, energy security, food security, and so on. Right. And and those are the, the the things that will affect the world economy and has to be addressed. But you can't address it unless you talk about the Ukraine issue, right? And in fact, for the G twenty, to totally avoid uh, discussing the Ukraine uh, war would mean it will lose credibility because uh, that's at the root of uh, many of the. Uh, big economic issues that we're uh, facing at the moment. And, and don't forget during the G20 summit in St. Petersburg, in Russia in fact, I remember because I was there, there was a discussion that started at 6pm, finished by 3am, and what did they discuss? Not trade, not uh, anything, but uh, the war in Syria, right? So uh, G20 has been known to discuss issues other than economic issues. Uh,
3: you know, this comes at a awkward time for President Jokowi to begin with, and, and President Jokowi is not known as a foreign policy president. This isn't what he does. It's not really what he wants to do, presumably. He sees these venues as useful ways to attract investment and, and economic benefits to Indonesia. How do you think he's thinking about this now geopolitical mess dumped on his doorstep? First, uh,
1: he has to accept that uh, G20 this year under indonesia's leadership is going to be totally different than any previous uh, G20 so he's got to accept that and secondly he has to accept that this is not going to be business as usual uh, which means what you know a G20 is a leaders led process right and there will be more need for diplomacy much more so than than before there is going to be uh, a need for him to personally outreach to G20 leaders especially G7 leaders uh, and and all the other leaders as well, to see what kind of resolution can be worked out, uh, especially on on the issue of uh, Russia's uh, membership or attendance at the G20. But definitely uh, President Jokowi will need to step up and do more diplomacy and less transactional uh, because, you know, President Jokowi has been very good at the transactional side, you know, uh, getting investments trade and and doing deals. But G20 this year will not be so much about that. It will be about, a lot of it is going to be a political and security issues uh, that need to be uh, addressed somehow.
4: You know, you mentioned the split between the G7 and, I guess, G13. Or oh, BRICS. Uh, <laughs> the yeah. BRICS, right. Can you tell us a little bit about what the other perspectives are, what the other approaches are, and what options might be available to Jakarta to try to reconcile some of these differences in time for November?
1: On the BRICS, uh, you know, Brazil has said that they want Russia in. Uh, China, obviously, right? India also uh, the same, and I think South Africa also have that view that right? Russia should remain in the G20. And on top of that, there's the MICTA, yeah, uh, the Mexico, Indonesia, uh, Turkey, uh, Korea, and Australia. Right? Australia's position is very well known; they don't want Russia in it. Korea just had a new government, and uh, we'll see. But I think they will be closer to the G7. Yeah, Indonesia's view is the. Uh, to want Russia to be part of it. And uh, again, Mexico and Turkey, you know, we have to look more into uh, their positions. Yeah. So, so basically, that is still split. And again, this is why it requires a great deal of uh, diplomacy from Indonesia. And you know, I think they, they're thinking of different formulas. But among the G7, what I noticed, uh, Canada, which spoke to, uh, Canadian foreign minister spoke to me, uh, I think uh, last week, and she said uh, she's uh, open to the idea of Ukraine joining as condition for if Russia were one way or another to still take part in the G20.
3: The domestic politics for Indonesia seem difficult. So we've seen the Indonesian government condemning the Russian invasion. Indonesia voted in favor of two of the, the early resolutions condemning Russia. But Indonesian public opinion seems rather split. Before the invasion, we had the Lowy Institute poll showing pretty significant support for – well, trust in President Putin in general, not as much as President Biden but more than a lot of other foreign leaders. And then anecdotally, we've got all these reports about how well Russian disinformation is doing on the Indonesian web. There was a a report from a sentiment analytics firm, which I'm always skeptical of, but noting that something like 96 percent of TikTok videos in Indonesia that addressed the Russia-Ukraine issue were pro-Russian and – I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. TikTok's not the real world. Mm -hmm. But clearly, Russian disinformation is finding a more fertile ground in Indonesia than it is in most of the rest of Southeast Asia. One, why is that? But two, how much pressure does that put on President Jokowi to push back against what I think could easily be seen as Western meddling?
4: Right. I mean, is that even true? Is that just an exaggeration that there's all this Russian disinformation in Indonesia right now?
1: There is – a good degree of pro-Russian narrative and sentiment is definitely there. I mean, not only in social media, but in conversations and in coffee shops, right? Uh, So so it's there. And to be honest, it surprised me as well, right? It surprised me uh, that a good number of Indonesian youth see this as they see a soccer match, right? Something that they cheer for, you know, and so on. And they are detached from what is really happening in Ukraine, Uh, the fact that there are 5 million refugees, civilians uh, being uh, massacred, missiles uh, going into hospitals and and apartment buildings and and so on. Uh, For some reason, these things are lost uh, to some of the public in Indonesia. And then on top of that, this is uh, mixed up with some degree of uh, anti-Western sentiments, right? So, I think this has affected the government's uh, response because I think the government wants to have a principled response, but this is also an era or a government which checks the political pulse of the public all the time. right? Uh, this is a new thing, uh, maybe not just in Indonesia, but they always test uh, what is the public opinion on this or that. And they're finding that netizens uh, have a lot of pro-Russian sentiments. And I think that affects to some degree the government's uh, response uh, to it. I was a a bit surprised to see because, I mean, you can't get more obvious. One country invading massively another sovereign country, right? And if that's not regarded as wrong, I don't know what is, right? But the reality is that it becomes much more complex based on public opinion on the ground,
4: and I don't see this ending anytime soon. I mean, there seems to be a lot of intractability right now with what's going on in Ukraine. And Jakarta probably doesn't really have the bandwidth right now to consider other events coming up, say, for example, the ASEAN chairmanship that Indonesia is supposed to take on next year. Has there been any thinking about how the Indonesian chairmanship of ASEAN is going to look like with all the fracas around the G20 right now?
1: The government officials I talked to said that they haven't had much time to think about ASEAN because G20 alone is really a, a lot to, to handle. But definitely what happens in Ukraine will be of immense consequence to ASEAN, You know, to how ASEAN would hold on or embrace ASEAN centrality. And to be honest, I think ASEAN officials are nervous about what this means to ASEAN Exercising in centrality in, in, in regional affairs. And there's going to be a lot of questions being asked on the ability of ASEAN institutions withstanding the new dynamics. And, you know, ASEAN, uh, you know, w- 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 we'll see uh, what will happen to the East Asia Summit this year, for example. Uh, similar pressures are being applied to Russia's uh, participation. And I think next year's uh, chairmanship of Indonesia and ASEAN will be uh, quite interesting and we will see the institution of ASEAN being tested uh, even more uh, next year. Yeah.
3: Dino, do you think the strategic class TNI and and professional bureaucrats in Jakarta have internalized just how tectonic a shift this is that there is no kind of going back to the world of February 2022 and that indonesia and like other countries cannot just wait this out there won't be as alina said this isn't going to end anytime soon and there will not be a return to a normal in which the u.s president and president putin can sit across the table from each other and you know the days of thinking that there might be waivers on u.s cats sanctions for buying russian equipment is probably gone one thing that just occurred to me today everybody's cheering, I certainly was, over Indonesia's standing up to China over the Tuna Block drilling, drilling operation in the Nine Dash Line. I'm not sure anybody remembers that the operator of the Tuna Block is a Russian state-owned company, Mm. and Russia is now a junior partner to China, probably indefinitely. What happens in six months when China tells Russia to disinvest from the Tuna Block? This relationship at least has a significant degree of strategic liability to Indonesia now. Is that something that you think is percolating through the system yet? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, discussions
1: now on what the post-Ukraine uh, war world and regional order will, will look like. There's a lot of it. In fact, when I get back to Indonesia, there's going to be a special session by Lamhana's Indonesia's uh, Defense Council on, on this issue. And definitely there's a lot of worry on what this means uh, for uh, Indonesian foreign policy and security environment. Uh, there is a worry that the hardened geopolitical tensions will make it even more difficult for ASEAN outlook on Indo-Pacific. But uh, one thing is that the relations with Russia at bilaterally remains normal. So at the UN... Uh, Indonesia co-sponsored uh, resolution uh, that condemned Russia. But bilaterally, not much has uh, happened. Trade, you know, our relations, uh, our ambassadors there uh, function normally. Foreign Minister Retno met with uh, Lavrov, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov uh, recently. Uh, so, so things are going as uh, usual. On the other hand also, uh, President Jokowi uh, will meet with President Biden at the uh, summit, ASEAN-US summit in, in DC. And I think there's a lot of expectations that this will be used to uh, elevate the bilateral relationship, uh, especially to recapture the Indonesia-US strategic partnership, Uh, because there's a feeling that strategic partnership uh, has somewhat lost momentum in, in recent years, especially during the Trump administration. So it's an opportunity to to recapture the soul of the partnership. And there's going to be a lot of interest uh, on on balance. Uh, So the the theme of balance has become more central in Indonesian foreign policy. And that means that Indonesia-U.S. relationship will be seen by Jakarta in the context of uh, achieving that balance.
4: I certainly don't envy the position that many Jakarta diplomats are in right now. But if history is anything to go by, I'm sure that the shuttle diplomacy that's being carried out now and the, the capabilities of Indonesian diplomats will somehow pull us through G20 in Bali. So I guess we'll see.
3: Well, if only all diplomats were Ambassador Dino Jalal, who was there when we inked this partnership. Maybe we should close with, by moving off of the Russia-Ukraine discussion and, and more firmly onto the bilateral discussion. The Biden administration spent a fair amount of time last year, I think, shuttling around the region, trying to repair some damage from the Trump years. But most of that shuttle diplomacy did not focus on Indonesia. And there were some legitimate reasons for that involving COVID numbers and the like. But the bottom line is Indonesia did not feel that it was given its due. And I think the Biden administration finally understood that and has worked in the last few months, six months or so, to try to show that it does consider Indonesia a top partner alongside Singapore, Vietnam, the Philippines, probably in Southeast Asia. Is that working? Do you think that we are past the the early rockiness of the Biden administration on this relationship?
1: Uh, I think so. That's why President Jokowi makes a point that he really needs to be in Washington to support the U.S.-ASEAN summit and uh, also to do a bilateral uh, meeting that, you know, we assume would would, would take place. And, and you're right, there was some curiosity why Indonesia was missing in the U.S. policy pronouncements in the first year or so. But I think uh, things are uh, catching up on all fronts, yeah? on, on the strategic fronts, on the political and economic fronts. I mean, one example is uh, President Jokowi delivered an address uh, for the Biden Democracy uh, Summit, but he did not do that to uh, Indonesia's own Bali Democracy Summit, which uh, you know, was an Indonesian-initiated uh, 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 process. Right? But uh, I-, I do uh, think there's a new opportunity. The one thing that needs to be understood is there's a lot of uh, people in Jakarta who ask about uh, consistency. Uh, of, of the US. Right? Uh, the feeling is always, okay, now we do this, but come election time, Washington is distracted again and things go on autopilot. Again, h- how do we beat that perception? Because that perception lingers on and most government officials I talk to uh, mentioned that. Uh, this is why all the bilateral programs, they need to go uh, as fast as they can. And remember Indonesia too has an election 2024, right? So getting things locked in and recaptured the, the soul of the partnership. And, and this is important. Getting a sense of purpose to the relationship is gonna be very important because I, I, I see many relationships where it's all a lot of trade and investment, a lot of numbers, but without a sense of purpose. And what I noticed uh, the highest point of Indonesia uh, U.S. Uh, cooperation was when we f- found a strong sense of purpose. This is during the Barack Obama years, for example. And also to some degree uh, when the U.S. and Indonesia cooperated uh, after 9-11, there was very strong sense of purpose to counter uh, t- uh, terrorism, right? So so let's see if that can be uh, recaptured. Yeah. A new sense of purpose or a renewed sense of purpose in the bilateral relationship. Otherwise, things just... Go business as usual. Yeah.
4: What do you think Jakarta will be looking for from this summit in terms of deliverables from President Biden's administration?
1: Okay, uh, from Jakarta's view, this will be mostly a commemorative summit. And the real one where there will be more substance to be uh, discussed uh, will happen at the end of the year. So uh, what Jakarta wants is a long-term vision about uh, ASEAN-US relationship, especially on defining the, the economic dimension of it uh, will be particularly uh, important. And know both sides are uh, working on it. I think we expect Ukraine to be uh, discussed. Uh, after all, there is an agenda on regional and international uh, situation, right? But from ASEAN's uh, viewpoint, they want that commemorative summit to produce a vision document on
3: where uh, the relationship would be uh, years from now. Thank you so much for joining us again, Pak Dino. So that was Dino Jalal, I'm Greg Boling, this is Alina Noor. Thank you all for listening and we will talk to you again in two weeks.
0: All right, thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to try and answer any questions that you might have.
2: And remember, we're new on the
0: scene, so do
2: us a favor and
0: subscribe and give us a
2: rating on iTunes or Spotify or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us, too.
0: Laurel Vibitzan is our producer. Our interns are Megan Sullivan, Drake Tien, and Hazen Williams. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Simon Tran-Hudis. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.